Well, good morning, divine loved ones. Do you remember that? You are divinely loved by the Father. Did you remind of yourself this morning? Yep. Divinely loved. Dad did. Good job, Dad. <laughs> hey, you know, we, we desire to continue in a spirit of worship here, and we do that in a lot of different ways. Oftentimes we think of worship as singing and the band, and that is also true, but worship is not limited to that. Worship is a lifestyle. It is a mindset. It's everything we do is with the intent of worship, and so even this morning, we have many different ways to engage or participate in our worship together. Before we worship through sermon... I want to worship through testimony. And I don't know if uh, some of you, how many ladies were involved with the if gathering here Friday night and Saturday morning? Actually, you should stand if you were here. Yeah, I just, I know there's other people from other churches as well. Yeah, a number of ladies, yeah, involved with that. Thank you. I do want to give a shout out. Uh, first of all, thank you to the leadership. I'm leaving a bath. I'm thinking of, there's, Brittany right there. I'm like, there's a whole number, I know there's a whole team pulling this off to not just to make their lives busier. They're doing it because they want to glorify God and to serve him and serve his church out of the way God has not only gifted them, but also inspired them. But here's the thing. I didn't get to go to the ladies' if conference. <laughs> Any other guys go to the ladies' if conference? Someone doing it for the team? Well, I got to hear a little bit from my wife uh, last night, uh, as well as Friday night and, and, and yesterday when she got home, and she's kind of offloading and processing and sharing everything about me, and I was like, man, I bet there's a lot of guys in here that would, and women that maybe, you know, some of you women that didn't get to participate, that would love to hear what it is that God taught you. So here's what we're going to do. I have this handy-dandy mic right here. And I want to come to you if you're willing to serve your church through testimony. So, I'm serious. I don't know. You're like, wait a second. This is the last. You don't have to come up here. I will come to you. You can just kind of. But, but we would love if you would bless us and help us in our worship through testimony. So who would like that was involved with the if gathering who would like to share? And guess what? It's always the most, being the first person is always the worst and the best. It's the hardest. Okay. Um, first, I just have to say thank you to IBC because God um, really met me personally, but a lot of us here. And I just appreciate you guys opening up just the R building, and it was just, we felt really loved and blessed. So I just have to say that because that is a valuable part to being able to do stuff like that. Um, so I'm Rachel Seedorf. Uh, Aaron's my brother in law, Abby's my sister. And um, I, I, there's so much I was blessed by, but I just want to share something that God really blessed me personally. So I do a lot of hosting and events, and um, I'm a part of a lot of things leading. And one of the areas that God has really been challenging me is that sometimes when you lead or you host, you kind of exclude yourself 
from receiving. You kind of think I'm here to serve. I'm here to like help gather people, you know? And, um, so God had been working on that in my heart. And, um, first of all, I just was a part of an amazing team that it was so easy to serve because there's so many women. It wasn't really, I didn't feel like it was up to me to actually, I didn't do that much. I felt like, but, um, before we were praying, before people came, and I just felt like God wanted me to pray that Psalm 23, where it's like he prepares the table, and that we as leaders, I was praying this for myself, that I would come and sit at the table. Well, I had no idea that the whole thing was on Psalms 23. No idea. The first person that came and spoke brought a lamb to the stage and was talking about how we are supposed to follow our shepherd. And, um, I mean... The presence of God was so powerful. If you were here, it was, I, I just, I, I want to weep. He was just meeting women who were blessed and we were crying and we were touched. And um, I often take lots of pictures because I'm part of that. I barely took any pictures. I was just like in front, just receiving. And it's interesting that if, um, the if ministry, it's about coming to the table to, together and I, um, I just felt like God was personally meeting me and saying, "Rachel, like I want, I prepared the table. Like I'm the one that's inviting you to come sit and receive and do it with other women. And that's what we need. We need to come together to receive from Him. And I mean, there's so many other stories, but that personally for me was something that God had already been working and He had prepared for me, and I got experience in a profound way, like. I'm so excited. We are going to host tables with um, through this ministry. We'll probably share more about it. But I just want to sit at the table and receive together. Kind of what Nick talked about last week was like, that's what he wants. He has so much for us. So anyways, it was incredible. Incredible, incredible. Thank you, Rachel. Yes, I, I'm your brother-in-law. That's your sister. And that's your husband right there. <laughs> just kidding. Sorry, Nick. Anyone you might want you to do if you left out or anything. So, <laughs> Anybody else at the IF gathering that would like to share? Oh, there we go. Terrifying. I'm Amber. Okay, Amber Miller. For those of you who don't know me, um, our God is a good shepherd. And that's what he told me this weekend. Not that I haven't heard it my whole life, but just to be with all the other ladies and to feel the Holy Spirit just moving. He invited all of us um, to just... uh, give our hearts to the Lord, and I know at least three ladies um, stood and and did, and um, I don't know, I didn't get to pray with them directly, but if that was the first time for them, or just a renewing of faith, but my faith has been renewed very strongly this weekend, and I haven't been able to be at church every week, so it was exponentially awesome. God is awesome. And I think he wants all of us to know 
His goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our lives. That was one of the messages. And I think I'll just leave you guys with that. In Jesus' name, amen. Hearing the shepherd's voice and being able to follow him in the darkness, we recognize it. Being willing to be led where you'd rather not go, that's more challenging. (laughs) And the takeaway from if from fearful to full, if you can hear that voice, you can rise to that challenge and realize it has been one You don't have to fear the failure. You can rise in the victory and to walk away being full and to come to a table and to be fed. It's the next adventure. Thanks, IBC. Actually, I have the same message um, than, I think it was you, (laughs) but I want to give you a visual for it, because that visual really touched me, and the person who gave it was telling us how life is difficult, there's always things that happen, but you're not alone, so I need to have two people who would come with me. Yes, thank you. Yes. (laughs) So this is goodness, and this is mercy. And I'm walking in my life, and I'm afraid. And something happens, sickness, illness, or something. But I'm not alone. And I go there. I try to run. (laughs) But they're here. Goodness and mercy. And I get involved in something else. (laughs) But they're here. Mercy and goodness. Or goodness and mercy. I forgot which one is which. (laughs) So they're always here. Now I'm running on the stage and ow! (laughs) They're holding me. If I fell, they probably would pick me up. (laughs) Goodness and mercy are with you all the days of your life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Thank you. We could probably go forever, but uh, anybody else? Uh, like, oh, Beth. So I invited Isabel to come, and she said, absolutely not. She said, I am too busy. I am in school. I can't take in anymore. And what did I say to you? And then later she came up to me and said, well, maybe. But I said, come and sit and take in. Don't have to do it. 
Yeah. That's right. <laughs> and you don't regret it whatsoever. Yeah, that's fun. I love it. I love it. Oh. Good morning. Um, you know, this weekend, I hope you guys can feel just hearing some of these women share their testimony. I know for me, just the Holy Spirit, it's, it is palpable. And that is how it was this weekend in worship, in the time we spent together. I mean, it really was an incredible weekend. And what I really want to share with you guys is the reason it was incredible is because as a leadership team, like we just got out of the way and it was all God. <laughs> Like that is what made this weekend amazing is him period. You know, I wrote notes this morning. I was journaling and you know, wow, if gathering here's some things God's teaching me. And the first thing I wrote is get out of the way to lead. The work is his, not ours lead from a posture of total submission. And that is this weekend. That is like, he was here and he was so present in one of my favorite moments. I don't know why I'm shaking now. I've been talking all weekend, but <laughs> um, one of my favorite moments was at the very end. So every, a lot of women had already gone home. There was about 50 of us left here. And we were finishing up with worship and Beth came to me and she was like, I don't know, but I feel like the Holy Spirit is telling me we need to pray over women on the way out. And I'm like, okay. And she's like, I don't know. I'm like, me neither, <laughs> but I know God's leading through you too. And so she was obedient to that and she came up and she actually invited the leadership team up to be prayed for. And there's a picture and I hope down the road we're able to share it with you guys because Pauline was able to get a picture from up there. But it was this beautiful moment where there was about 50 women laying hands on each other up front and we were just praying and we were praying for each other and then we started singing and it was just an incredible like it was god it wasn't scripted it wasn't i mean it was the holy spirit moving through this place because he wants to touch and change the lives of the women on this peninsula in this church and so we just invite you guys to be a part of the work that he's doing there's some really exciting stuff happening and we just love you women and invite you to be a part of this work with us You might be wondering, um, did I do that because I did not prepare a sermon? <laughs> and so I got to fill the time to at least we get to 11, and then we're like, all right, good. I think we can call it quits. No, I actually did prepare something, but at the same time, when an opportunity presents itself, we want to take advantage of it. And, and I can't think of a, a greater way for the church to be blessed, encouraged, challenged, exhorted, uh, uplifted, and compelled in their pursuit of Christ but through the, the ministry of testimony. And so thank you for being willing to step up and encourage because no doubt every one of you has a story to tell that was participating in that. Every one of you that participated in that if gathering is uh, no doubt touched, encountered God, and no doubt is, like you said, Ember, is like things that we hear over and over and over again, we need to hear them again and again and again. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Or I just, we have amnesia every single morning. And so we need to hear the truths wash over us afresh. So thank you for testifying to the goodness of God. A um, couple of the things I want to do before I read our text here this morning. Uh, first of all, I want to say thank you to my brother-in-law and just my brother in Christ, Nick Seedor, for bringing the word last week. That was incredible, brother. Thank you. <laughs> for blessing us. So, <clears throat> um, 
I love the fact that uh, we can start viewing, regarding uh, one another in, in, a kind of, in a much more appropriate light, not just like, hey, what's up, buddy, but you are divinely loved. I think that's even somewhat the, the, the implicit theme in the if gathering is like, look how the Father loves you. Even now, goodness and mercy following me everywhere around, right? And we oftentimes think, oh, surely I'm alone. And yet the whole time, God has never, ever left us. Truths that we need to remind ourselves of. So thank you, brother, for just bringing us into that, the throne room of the Father and really just the living room of the Father and saying, hey, I just love you. Um. You know, there's all kinds of things that are going on at IBC and stuff, and uh, we don't, again, we don't try to put things before you just to make your life more busy than it already is. However, we do seek to encourage you, our, our, our primary and, and drive and what we say yes and no to is for the ultimate purpose is we want you to be encouraged and strengthened and discipled in your pursuit of Christ. And there's a lot of different ways to do that. Uh, one such opportunity is the, the, the marriage seminar that's coming up this next this coming Friday, we already did one of them. We're doing another one. We're doing one every month just for the sake of just encouraging you in your marriage. It could also include parenting as well. But what we are seeking to do is to glean the, the, the wisdom of people who have been there, done that, and not to have necessarily just a guest speaker come in that we will never have a relationship with, but to do it with people that we have relationships with already. And so every single month, we have a kind of a seasoned couple. And I don't mean seasoned as an old and decrepit. I mean seasoned as an life experience. And, and so... Um, so I invite you, if you have not yet signed up again, uh, please do so. Uh, if you're thinking like, I'm, I'm good, my marriage is awesome, great. Why don't you come and be an encouragement to those marriages that are not awesome? And, uh, and if you're thinking like, man, I could really use some work, or I, I don't, the last thing I want to do is come to a group of people and just blah, vomit my issues out, here's the thing, that is exactly where you need to be. Because much like what Brittany was describing, how we just get to kind of conclude our time in prayer, that is also what we're going to be doing, surrounding ourselves with one another going, none of us have arrived, but guess what? Together we are pursuing the Father. Together we are pursuing Jesus Christ, and by his grace we will win and we will experience victory both in our marriages as well as in our parenting endeavors. So you're invited. And by the way, if you're thinking, oh, I'm an older, seasoned couple, I'm at the kind of the tail end of my life, you know, been an empty nester forever, this is an incredible opportunity for you to come and to get to know some of these younger families. Because guess what? We need encouragement. This is the tightest model that we're talking about here. So you are more than invited. That being said, I want to invite you to turn to your Bibles to Second John. 2 John only has one chapter, so I'm going to read the entire thing for us here this morning. But in 2 John, as you're turning there, let me just give you a kit, just a brief context of how or when this letter was written. In 2 John, John had already been exiled to the island of Patmos, uh, and on that island, that's where Revelation was actually written. So he's already written his gospel, he's already written his first letter, he's exiled, he writes Revelation, and now he's coming off kind of near the end of his life, and these are the kind of the second and third John are these final letters that we have from this apostle. 
And again, his themes continue to be interwoven. If you read the Gospel of John, if you read 1 John, even if you read Revelation for that matter, there are a lot of overlapping themes that John continually comes back to. And so 2 John is no different in that process. However, he does highlight some of the things or themes he's already said, but with a a unique nuance or a, a specific target to make sure that it is clear in our minds. And so let's read this together, and I want to invite you to stand to your feet, actually. Let us stand to our feet, and let us read or listen to the words of God for us this morning. The elder, to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one you have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you would walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, such a one as a deceiver and the Antichrist. Watch yourselves, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who, does, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would, not, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Well, Father, even as we are confronted with your words, we know that your word to us is not the opinion of man, but it is the very inspired words of God through faithful agents. And I just pray that for us this morning, as we continue in a spirit of worship, Father, I just pray that we would have receptive hearts, that we would have a mind that is able to comprehend for us. And I pray that even my preparation and probably the need for more preparation, uh, Father, I just pray that you would guide our time. May we conclude with, with absolute certainty, Father, when we walk away from here that we have heard from you that the Father has spoken by his Spirit, that we are able to exalt Jesus and to see him more clearly as he is. And Father, we just ask that you'd be pleased by our time. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat right now. On June 25th, 1967, 
The Beatles performed one of the greatest songs of all time for the very first time. Can you guess what it was? Well, there's a spoiler alert. You said it all right. All you need is love, right? There was this concert called the, the uh, Our World Concert. It was the first time that satellites linked up in our, in our solar system here, or not solar system, in our atmosphere here, and, uh, and they were doing this global concert, 400 million tuning in to this concert, and every country on six continents was kind of, kind of giving the best of their best, and everybody's representing their style of music, and of course, who was representing the UK at that time? But the Beatles, and the Beatles wrote this song called, All You Need Is Love. Of course, this was written and performed during the summer of love, Right? Uh, when anti-war slogans were at its highest peak at that time. And uh, when interviewed about the, kind of the inspiration behind this song, John Lennon actually said he wrote it with a simplicity and a repetition so that it could be easily palatable. It could be easily received and easily understood by anybody on the globe, regardless of country of origin, regardless of language being heard. He's like, everyone cannot deny the, 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 the description as well as the importance of this message. After all, I think as the saying kind of goes, love is a universal need, and it is also, to some people at least, universally understood. And if we would just embrace love then guess what? The result of that would be war and starvation would be eradicated and and people would be seeking the unity and the harmony that we ought to share with one another rather than divide over the million different things that we part ways oftentimes, right? All you need is love, right? Well, the Apostle Paul, excuse me, the Apostle John would respond actually with an emphatic yes. Yes. Amen, he would say. We do need love. We all are in grave need of more love. But then he would qualify that our universal need for love by asserting that the love that everyone most needs is an agape love. It's a divine love. It's not a love as the world defines, but it's a love that can only be given by someone or something outside of ourselves, in this case, God the Father. Now, why are we all in need of agape love? Nick already kind of shared with us the foundation behind that, but again, this is a topic that has no end. So it needs to be talked about over and over again. But we need agape love because agape first originates with God himself and is experienced only when you and I are divinely connected to the Father through the Spirit of Christ. So we cannot experience, let alone give, this agape love until we are divinely connected to the Spirit of Christ. That's why Nick Seedorf uh, so powerfully and clearly helped us understand this last week. And he says, the, what, the only way you and I can agape one another, which again, what is agape? An unconditional love, a, willing, a willingness to sacrifice or lay down your life for another person. Not just physically, but emotionally, relationally, socially, 
in the most practical ways sometimes. The only way that you and I can effectively agape one another as we are called to do is by first being filled with God's agape for us. The only way that you and I can divinely love one another is by first receiving the Father's divine love for us through Jesus Christ. Put simply, you cannot give what you don't have. You cannot offer what you have not first received. And so in his gospel and in his first letter, John emphasizes over and again the the importance of agape love for brothers and sisters in Christ, even pointing out that agape love for one another was really the one command that Jesus gave us, and when we keep this one command, we actually fulfill all the other commands of God. Well, in his second letter, John doesn't raise really any new themes But he does, however, clarify that agape love can only be lived out in our lives when we uphold the truth of Jesus Christ. In other words, we can talk about the idea of love and we can reminisce and even like and long for this whole, this this agape reality in one another's life as well as in our life, but John is seeking to make, make very clear that the way in which you and I effectively agape one another or divinely love one another is yes, first source in the fact that we have to receive it from him, but we give it and we, and the way it practically manifests itself is when we uphold the truth truth of Jesus Christ to one another. In other words, there's a reciprocal relationship that exists between love or agape love and truth, specifically truth that centers on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Maybe like many of you, my wife and I got to go watch the Jesus Revolution On the last day, finally, thank you, Randy, for watching all our kids. Took the van, took them to the park, took them to pizza, took them to ice cream. Incredible. New hero right there. (laughs) So Abby and I watched the Jesus Revolution like probably many of you did. And if you haven't, sorry, here's a spoiler alert. You know, the whole point is about the kind of Jesus movement that took place in the late 60s, early 70s. Some of you were a part of that, I understand, or at least lived in kind of concurrent times when that was going on. And uh, the, the whole thing is the hippie movement was really a, a movement of love, right? It was love and then also kind of truth as I define it or truth as I see it. But Lonnie Frisbee in this movie acknowledged until the hippies realized that the truth they were searching for could only be discovered in the person of Jesus Christ, only then would they find what they were looking for. Even as he said in the movie, you know, some people were looking and, you know, maybe if I take acid or do this drug or do this or just party or go to the next festival, all this stuff, you know, we'll all do these things and this will just kind of give this openness, it'll open our minds only to hit a dead end every single time. And what this movie kind of helps kind of portray, especially through the lives of Chuck Smith, Lonnie Frisbee, as well as, um, what's his bucket, Greg Laurie. You know, he really just showed like they were looking, they're searching, they're searching, but only until they came and were confronted with the person of Jesus did they find what they were really looking for. 
And without Christ, they would always be found wanting. The fact is, truth is not just an idea to be discovered, but truth is really a person to be embraced. And that embrace is of Jesus Christ. I think Randy Alcorn, I read in an article just this week and uh, in his blog, and he said this, he's, he called it the truthfulness of truth. And he says this in his article, he says, truth is not merely an impersonal moral standard. It is a living person who loved us so much that he bears on his hands the eternal scars because he rescued us. Without Christ, any sacrifice we make is worthless. We are miserable without Jesus. Nothing we have can satisfy us. And even if it did, we couldn't hold on to it. And this is why the Jesus movement in the, the late 60s and early 70s discovered that you know, with all the drugs and all the experiences and all the music and all the festivals and all the messages that were coming out, nothing bridged the gap. Nothing completed that longing until they were confronted with the person of Jesus Christ. And when they were, as this movie portrayed, and, that was, and as was a true reality, many lives were changed. This is what it's all about. This is the best dopamine rush I could ever experience. Amen. <laughs> I believe this is what John is emphasizing in his second letter, among many thoughts. Yes, love for one another is absolutely foundational to the, to the church. It's, it's the lifeblood of the church. Agape love in our interpersonal relationships is absolutely crucial and important. But we also must understand, almost kind of expanding that understanding is this, that agape love for one another is inseparable from the truth of Jesus Christ. Love and truth are codependent complements of one another. They're not polarized extremes, whether you either have one or the other. We oftentimes live our lives that way, but that's not how they are intended to be. No, love and truth are co-equals. Think of them like a, a, a two rails on a railroad track. One rail, and you have a disaster. Two rails, you could still have a disaster, but in this case, it's how the train keeps trucking along, Right? Two rails, love and truth. And when love is emphasized at the expense of truth or when truth is elevated over and above love, the results are disastrous. In fact, the relational devastation is almost painfully unrepairable. And so, yes, the Beatles are partly correct. They are partly correct in their message that all you need is love. But John the Apostle, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, qualifies our universal need for divine love by saying, we walk in love for one another by our devotion to the truth of Jesus Christ. We walk in agape love. We walk in divine love with one another or for one another by or because of our devotion to the truth of Jesus Christ. Look at verses one through four just real quickly again with me. This is how John begins his, his second letter. The elder to the elect lady and her children. By the way, time out. 
there are, the, the, the line is split down the middle as far as, is John really talking to a, um, like a mom and her children, a single family? Or is this kind of like kind of cryptic language for like the lady representing the church and the children represent the people within the church? It can go either way. It doesn't actually change the interpretation of its message. So don't get hung up on that if, you get, if you're thinking about that. There are people that are really smart on both sides of the issue. The elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth. Because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. From God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son. In truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. In the first four verses alone, truth is mentioned five times. And a couple of those times coupled with love and truth, or what Scripture uh, expands Scripture a little bit, grace and truth. The point is this, that truth and love are inseparable complements. They are are reciprocal complements of one another. I mean, look at what other scripture says about this kind of grace and truth or love and truth complement. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, for example, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. And God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to knowledge of the truth. Or listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Correcting those in opposition with great patience and gentleness. Speaking the truth in love. And so while the undiluted and uncorrupted truth of Jesus Christ and his gospel is of extreme importance, we also see equally that it is important that we handle this truth, specifically that we communicate this truth in love. I'm just reading a biography this week by John Newton. John Newton is the guy who wrote Amazing Grace. It's like the longest, probably the hymn that's lasted the longest that we continue to sing popularly today. John Newton was a slave trader. He was a reprobate. He was a, a wolf in sheep's clothing for the early part of his life, and then God grabbed him in a very miraculous way and used him very powerfully. And, uh, and he, he, he adopted, or actually kind of was kind of reckoned, rendered a reputation, so to speak, of being a man of, of devout truth, but done so in a very tender manner. John Newton had this, in fact, some guys even got tired of him because he's like, ah, oh, you're speaking the truth, but it's not as forceful as I want it. You're so gentle. And yet John Newton's approach was this, if I just feed them with the truth of God's love and pointing them to the cross of grace, then all the other stuff kind of can't fill the basket. He says as equally as, 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 as 
critical and crucial as truth is, it is also equally true that grace and love coincide. The fact is, grace and truth, love and truth, they go hand in hand, and one without the other becomes a disaster. It doesn't mean that there aren't times in which the message may feel more truthful than loving, right? Sometimes, as a parent, I can't just be like, could you please stop doing that for the 20th time? Sometimes I had to kind of, you know, get my stern voice on, right? Like, this is the last warning, right? Looking at Katie right now. Just kidding. She's a great kid. (laughs) The other ones, however, I'm not sure. but um, No, but seriously, sometimes the truth is... feels more evident and more visible. Look what Jesus said to some of the Pharisees, right? You brood of vipers. Or what else did he say in Matthew 23? He called them whitewashed tombs, seemingly clean on the outside, but dead on the inside. That was not a compliment. John the Baptist didn't have a great reputation either as far as his blunt truth. So there's a time and there's a place to call things what they are. But in the same breath, you also see Jesus speaking the truth with incredible gentleness and grace. I mean, think the woman at the well in John chapter 4, right? Jesus approaches her, and first the disciples are already confounded because Jesus is walking up to this random woman and a woman of reputation, might we add. And he even knows everything about this woman. He's like, you've had five husbands, and the one you're with now isn't even your husband. He knows all her sin. And yet her message, when she runs back to her village, says, come see a man who told me everything. He loved her to repentance. He loved her with the truth. I already know everything about you. But what draws you is the grace of God. What draws you is the love that God offers you, that he has for you. That's what changes you. The truth convicts. That was the point of the law. The law was to confront us with our sin and to tell us, you are really bad. You're worse than you really think you are. But it's grace that saves and transforms. The point I'm getting at is this, or mind you, that John is getting at is this. Agape love doesn't disregard or dilute biblical truth. It is the catalyst by which truth is heard and received. Agape love, grace is the catalyst by which truth is heard and received. Agape love opens the door of one's heart so that truth can enter and gently reform. I appreciate, we always remember what uh, Doug Harrison said. He was one of the first people we ever met when we came to IBC, but he and his wife were on his way out. They work, they work with MAF. But he always said this. He said, you need to learn to hug the emotions before you offer the truth. It's really helped in my marriage, by the way. Just that, that one's a free one. Hug the emotions before you offer the truth. My default is to go, well, here's what's right, black and white. And that goes over like a lead balloon. But when you hug the emotions and you offer grace and compassion and and kindness, it draws people in. And then you're able to have a conversation about how should we think about this? What do you think the, tr- the fruit is 
when we have, when we live kind of with this balance of truth in love. Well, John says that what we can expect to experience is grace and mercy and peace. Redemptively, grace means that, that God gives us what we, don't, what we don't deserve. Redemptively, grace means that God gives you, he offers you and gives you fully and completely what you don't deserve. What we deserve was eternal punishment and what he gave you was eternal life. Redemptively, mercy is God not giving you what you do deserve. Again, what we deserved was eternal punishment, and instead, he says, you're innocent and free. And therefore, as throughout the scripture we see, and because of the grace and because of God's mercy, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That word for peace in the Hebraic is shalom, wholeness, completeness in every aspect of life. A deep-seated settledness and resolve, like it is well with my soul. Mercy and goodness are following me everywhere. Regardless of the valley of the shadow of death, I don't fear evil because why? You are with me. And your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So when we uphold the truth of Jesus Christ to one another with agape love for one another, the result is grace and mercy and peace in our relationships. And so John, out of love for these believers, out of the love for the church, he does the most loving thing you can do, and he warns the church of false teachers that present a false Jesus. He's not saying he hates false teachers. He's not saying that he's like, oh, these guys are the enemy. They're from the pit of hell. He might have actually said that. I don't know. But, but to understand the spirit of it is he's actually warning these believers so they would not be led astray. Have you ever, uh, sometimes you kind of, you peruse your little news app and, and you see kind of like people do some really dumb things sometimes. Like, you know, you got the classic person who jumped in the polar bear den at the zoo. You're like, what were they thinking? There's a reason why there's a sign that says, do not enter. They're not saying do not enter because we want to make your zoo experience really boring and and dreary, and it'd be so much better if you could kind of pet the bear or something like that. No, they say, don't go into this bin or you will die. That's kind of what John is saying here. Watch out for these false teachers. Be on guard. Be watchful. He's not talking like, hey, you know, do we, are we just talking about different views of baptism here? Are we talking about end times perspectives when you think Jesus is coming back? That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about false teachers that are presenting a false religion or a cult that is leading people to the gates of hell. And so John takes it personally, and he's not dabbling. He's not just going, well, you know, you, know, you should listen to the conversation. No, he's like, watch out for these people. Because false teachers and false religions always distort or corrupt the person or work of Jesus Christ. 
this guy named by James Walker, he actually offers, offers kind of a, a helpful clarity. He calls it the mathematics of cults. He says, this is what cult leaders do or false teachers do. They either add an extra biblical source of authority by prophet, pen, or professor. Think Book of Mormon, something like that. They add to the authoritative scriptures, or they subtract from the person and work of Jesus Christ, usually reducing his humanity or reducing his deity. He's less than he really is, not fully God, not fully man. Or what false teachers do is they divide our allegiance from Christ alone to other saviors. Think, Gandhi's a nice guy who had a lot of nice things to say too, and he probably did. Or think even more kind of hitting home, other saviors may not be another person, but they could be another thing like my security and my peace and my shalom, my well-being is wrapped up not in Jesus Christ, but in my nest egg. And so some of you are really nervous right now because it's not been a very promising investing year so far. Or false teachers will also multiply requirements for salvation. Jesus plus works. Jesus plus anything else versus Jesus alone. The point is, if we get Jesus wrong, then everything else begins to become wrong. When Jesus is corrupted or distorted, everything else kind of, has, there's a ripple effect in, our other, in all our theology. And this can have eternally and really damning implications for people. And so John, in a so gentle fashion, says that this is what you are to do with these teachers who promote a false Jesus. He says, have nothing to do with them. Stay away from them. Look at what he says in verse 10 and 11. If anyone comes to your meeting and does not teach the truth about Christ, don't invite that person into your home or give any kind of encouragement. Anyone who encourages such people becomes a partner in their evil work. Ouch. Or listen to Paul's warning in Acts 20 when he says this, I know that false teachers, like vicious wolves, will come in among you after I leave, not sparing the flock. Even some men from your own group will rise up and distort the truth in order to draw a following. Watch out. Be on guard. Be vigilant. Be proactive against such teaching. What John is getting at is this. We must treat heretical ideas and and false theologies that are not found in the scriptures, we must treat them not as, that's kind of good for you and that's kind of good for me. No, we must teach them, especially when they enter into our sacred space called the church, we need to treat them like a plague. We need to treat it like an extremely contagious disease because heresy is not innocent. We need to understand that Heretical ideas are not innocent. They're not neutral. They're demonic. And it can, and it does, lead people to the gates of hell. And so John bluntly and boldly warns, don't even entertain those who promote such garbage 
Don't give any illusion that you agree. Don't accidentally encourage the work of heretics in your attempt to be courteous. It kind of begs the question for me as I'm reading and studying this passage is, well, does that mean that when the pair of Mormons come up to my front door, do I give them the riot act and shut the door in their face? Is that how I'm supposed to respond? Is that what John's talking about here? Or, or does this mean that we should never have a conversation with someone that doesn't think like me or believe like me? Is that what John is getting at? I don't believe so. So here's the kind of a qualification to this very blunt language. You see, when John warned against receiving heretics, his focus was on supporting their efforts. What he was warning against was that he, he's like, don't, don't be guilty of aiding and embedding, in a sense, these false teachers. In other words, don't be used even implicitly or accidentally to, be, uh, to, to, kinda, uh, to advance their cause. We don't want to be a support or a support in the continuation of their efforts. We don't want to accidentally be used by the enemy to encourage the continuation of a false gospel that leads people to a real hell. That said, I don't believe John is saying that we shouldn't be hospitable followers of Jesus Christ who are eager to reach people, to reach the lost with the saving news of Jesus Christ. In fact, Christians ought to have a reputation of extreme hospitality. Let me explain with a real-life illustration. I don't know if you've ever heard of the name Rosaria Butterfield. If you have not read any of her books, she's, to my knowledge, has written three. Um, Rosaria Butterfield was an English professor at Syracuse University. She was a lesbian feminist, a leader in the LGBTQ plus rights co-author of the first domestic partnership policy at Syracuse University, and at that time was a soon-to-be tenured radical. She thought of Christians as small-minded, uncharitable, meat-eaters who believed in corporal punishment, very little rights for women's choice, racist, sexist, homophobic. Rosaria thought of Christians as the enemy of everything she upheld as important in life. Well, after writing an article in, uh, I think, the Syracuse Times, she received an invitation by a Christian, actually an elderly pastor and his wife, no doubt, uh, for dinner to discuss her misgivings about Christianity because she tore Christianity apart, at least from her perspective. Now, you know, it kind of begs the question, like, if you were to read an article such as that, what would be your typical response? Maybe, maybe kind of forward it along the social media platforms and say, hey, look how ridiculous this person is. Maybe kind of give your own kind of like return punch verbally uh, in the safety of your computer, phone, whatever. Maybe you would just be thinking ill thoughts, that person going, man, I just hope that person gets in a car wreck tomorrow. I'm so offended by what they said to me. Oh, I know I can't really think that or at least say it out loud. So, yeah. Now, this pastor, Pastor Ken Smith, actually. Ken, are you in here? I was thinking of you, Ken, when I saw this. (laughs) Different Ken Smith, but you know what? I think you embody this well as well. Ken Smith and his wife 
didn't ream her over the, the social media platforms. He wrote a letter and said, hey, we would love to have you over for dinner. Now again, I already gave you a brief description of Rosera Butterfield and what she thought about Christians. She's not a sister in Christ. And yet they invite her in and say, why don't you come over for dinner? And so she finds herself in enemy territory one day at the house of this Christian pastor and his wife, except what she encountered was completely unexpected. And I read to you her own words. I breathed hard and hoisted myself out of the truck, nursing a tender hamstring for my morning run. I waded through the unusual thick July humidity in the front door, and I knocked. The threshold to their life was like none other. The threshold to their life brought me to the foot of the cross. Nothing about that night unfolded according to my confidence script. Nothing happened in the way I expected. Not that night, or the years after, or the hundred of, of meals, or the long nights of psalm singing and prayer as other believers from the church and university walked through the door of this house as if no door was there. Nothing prepared me for this openness and truth. Nothing prepared me for the unstoppable gospel and for the love of Jesus, made manifest by the daily practices of hospitality undertaken in this one simple Christian home. This Christian home became my two-year refuge and way station. Long before I ever walked through the doors of the church, the Smith home was the place where I wrestled with the Bible, with the reality that Jesus is who he says he is, and eventually came face to face with him on the glittering knife's edge of my choice of sexual sin. This Christian home was where I wrestled with my sexual identity and where I first dared ask the question, is being a lesbian who I really am? Or is it how the fall of Adam made me? Is it my authentic identity or the distorted one that came through the power of Adam's imputed and original sin to render my deep and primal feelings untrustworthy and untrue? Later in life, and now as a follower of Jesus Christ for many years, Rosario Butterfield reflects on her time in the Smith home and concludes one thing. They showed me radically ordinary hospitality. They didn't take the iron hammer of truth and pound it in my face. They loved me without diluting the truthfulness of Jesus Christ. They saw their home as a context in which the gospel could be a, a, a context of grace and truth. And for two years in that time, if you read her, the unlikely uh, I forget the name of the book, but uh, the first book. Something about an unlikely convert, yeah. Um, it's, it's an incredible read. An incredible read because you see these people just loving and patiently just keep putting the truth forward. Not knocking it out of the park, but just inviting her in. Not getting defensive. As Pastor Mike said many times before, the truth can stand naked in the street and not be ashamed. So you just present the truth, and sometimes it's palatable, and if the Spirit is working, then guess what? They're going to receive it. 
And maybe not in that moment, but they're going to walk away chewing on it as she did for two years until finally she came and confronted and says, Jesus is the way. Everything I've been looking for or longing for is found in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what the hippie movement in the 70s discovered. Oh, it wasn't the drugs, it wasn't the music, it wasn't this, it wasn't that, it was Jesus. That's what my heart's been longing for all this time. Brothers and sisters, do you realize that 75% of Port Angeles doesn't even, isn't even affiliated with the religious movement? That's including all the false religions. There are so many people that are looking in so many places and they continue to see themselves wanting because they don't know that truth is not an idea. Truth is a person. And that person embodies grace and love and kindness. It says, come to me all who are weary and full of burden and I will give you rest. We are lost and we are dead in our sin, but Jesus says, I've come to give you life and to have it to the full. So brothers and sisters, on one hand, John says very boldly and warns us very staunchly, don't entertain the false teachers. It can wreak havoc within your church myths. Don't accidentally be used by the enemy to endorse or even in a nice, even even in our attempt to be nice to somehow roll out the carpet so that their message might continue to go forward. No, don't even entertain that. And at the same time, realize that God has called us to go into all the world and preach the gospel. To let people know that there's a God in heaven who loves them. And so when it comes down to Christian hospitality or radically ordinary hospitality, it really comes down to motive. Do I see my home as a place in which the gospel is encouraged and put forward? Do I see my life as a conduit of God's blessing and love and grace? To to place people going like what you really long for. You don't even realize it. Your eyes are blind. Perhaps by the Spirit of God in my gentle approach He will remove the blinders from your eyes and help you see and savor the goodness of Jesus Christ. He's called all of us to that. We've all been commissioned. We've all been sent out. And yet we can't really be rightly motivated or properly compelled until even as we were reminded of last week, until we first are undone by the goodness of God. We can't give what we don't have. And even as you reminded us, Amber, I need to hear this over and over and over and over and over again. And that's what we get to do together. Remind one another of these things. Remind one another of our identity in Christ. 
remind one another that we are divinely loved ones. And as divine loved ones, eternally loved by the Father, he says, there are many that don't yet have that love. There are many that don't understand that the truth they long for, the idol that they are continue to be addicted to is actually what they long for is Jesus and more of him. I close in this way. And I quote from Douglas Sean O'Donnell. He said, it is because of heresy that truth and love in the church must join hands and walk forward together. For if you have just truth without love or love without truth, you do not have a church. You might have a political party, a country club, or a workers' union, but you do not have Emmanuel's Ecclesia. The church is not a society where you can come as you are, stay as you are, do as you like, and think as you might. Rather, Christ's church is a place, rather it is a people, where truth and love reside and preside, where agape love and truth necessarily join hands and walk forward together. I pray that we as a church might live this out. But here's the deal. We all fall short, right? Some of us have a bent more towards on the loving side. Some of us have a bent more on the truthful side. Some of us are just bent and we don't know what side. (laughs) But the fact is, we all fall short to live this out well. We all fall short to live this consistently in our lives, even though this is the standard. But there is one who lived out truth in perfect love, and that is Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus modeled grace and truth perfectly because Jesus is the incarnate of grace and truth. What does John say in his gospel in in the first chapter, verse 14? He says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And so Jesus came to us in truth and in love said, you're dead in your sins, and you need someone outside of yourself to change you to fix you, to save you. But he also came to us in grace and love, and he says, yes, you are dead in your sin, but I will make you alive in me. The Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. So Jesus, the perfect example, the embodiment of grace and truth, He tells us what we need to hear, and then he says, I've done everything for you. Oh, Father, we just thank you right now that you have, even today, we have been the recipient of your grace and your mercy and your kindness, your steadfast love, your forgiveness. Father, even today, whether we realized it or not, 
whether we even had the ability to acknowledge it or not, we woke up with our first conscious breath. And at that moment, we had the opportunity to say, we are divinely loved by the Father. Father, there are so many people, and you know better than anybody, that so many people in this world and in Port Angeles that do not know the love that you have for them. So I pray that we as a church, as divinely loved ones, as a family, that we would view our home, that we would view our life is a context and opportunity for gospel conversation. That we would be eager to pursue the lost, not because we're adopting their perspective on life, but because we're eager to point them and confront them with the person of Jesus Christ. We acknowledge too, Father, that we can only be compelled in our evangelistic fervor when we are first undone by your grace and your mercy. May we never part ways. May we never go a day without celebrating and giving thanks for the goodness and the mercy and the grace that we live in. Father, may that not just be an idea. May that not be a regurgitation of things we learned growing up in the church. May we embody that reality. And may your Spirit, Holy Spirit, do that transforming work in our lives. Fill us. Make all that we know in our minds sink into our hearts and transform us. We ask these things in your precious and holy name. Amen.